An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, I'm pleased to welcome Bill Coffin, Editor-in-Chief of Ethisphere. Ethisphere is dedicated to promoting standards of ethical business practice, specifically those which encourage marketplace trust and business success. You might know Ethisphere from its annual report on the world's most ethical companies or its 100 most influential people in business ethics, a list I was honored to be on a number of years ago. Bill was previously editor-in-chief of Compliance Week, so progression from compliance to ethics, a progression I'm sure we'll explore. In addition, Bill has a special understanding of finance, having worked for some of the largest insurance companies in the world. His writing has appeared in all the major financial publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Fortune. And he's received an armload of journalistic awards. But proving that outside in guests are full of surprises, Bill also has a second career. He's a successful fantasy author, most notably of Dark Britannia, a trilogy, and the creator of a number of fantasy role-play games. Hey, Bill, welcome to Outside In. John, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I often joke that the business world sometimes resembles a weird dystopian landscape inhabited by white knights, poison pills, raiders, and goodbye kisses. But you seem to have taken this to an entirely different level. And it does seem a long way from writing role-play games and fantasy books to being one of the people most expert in business compliance and ethics. So what's your origin story? What's the personal and professional career arc? Basically, how did you become the person you are today? So I think the best way to, to characterize it is that I've kind of led a double life for much of my career. When I first started getting into the working world, I got involved um, in the insurance industry, really writing about insurance. And if you ask a lot of insurance professionals, they will tell you that they didn't choose you know, insurance. They just sort of kind of found themselves there. And that was that was my case. I uh, got out of school and wanted to do anything involving writing. And it turns out I lived not far from the AM Best Company, which is a very, very prominent rating agency for the insurance industry. And that's where I got involved in technical writing and writing about insurance. And that was also my my opening into journalism when I graduated within there to write for Best Review magazine. That's when I actually became a, a bona fide journalist. I found that work to be very interesting, actually, because insurance touches everything. It enabled me, by writing about risk finance, I was actually able to write about all aspects of business, all industries. Uh, it was really a broad field, and it, it really satisfied my intellectual curiosity, to be honest. And so I think it's why I stuck around in that space for so long, and I got to talk to some really fascinating people while doing it. All along the way, I've always um, 
been writing fantasy novels, science fiction novels, huge role-playing game geek. And um, those things never went away. They're always in, in the background. And I was always kind of writing on those things as well. And so not long after uh, I had joined, you know, the actual working field in the insurance and risk space, I had published my first novel. I started writing freelance role-playing games. And these two things have kind of formed this weird professional double helix and they kind of keep crossing paths. And there's a period of time I'll be doing more of that work and then I'll be doing more of the professional work and all that sort of thing. But in recent years, it's been much more on the, the traditional, you know, professional uh, track as I've been, you know, working for Compliance Week and then I worked for AIG for a while and then here I am at, at, at Ethosphere. Um, but the novel writing and the game stuff, it's always been in the background. It's kind of uh, makes me sort of a weird Jekyll and Hyde kind of professional because <laughs> I've always got this, these two halves that don't seem to reconcile very easily. Yeah, you did manage to combine them at least once. I think you did a, uh, a, a feature that you got a lot of credit for about a writer for Marvel Comics. Yeah. yeah. What was that and how did that come about and was combining the two fun? That remains to date probably the, the, the piece of my professional work of which I'm most proud. Um, it's a story called Tragic Tale. It's about uh, this writer named Bill Mantlo, who was a very prolific comic book writer for Marvel Comics in the 1970s and the 1980s. He was known as the fill-in king. He was just super prolific. He wasn't the best writer, but he had a gift for turning around a comic script inside like 12 or 16 hours. He just banged these things out. And at a time when Marvel's own schedules were just really all over the place, they were always behind. And so they're always turning to him going, hey, Bill, we need an issue of name that comic. Can you write it like today? And he would. And that was his claim to fame. And I, I got to know his comics and I enjoyed them. And I was reading them one day and realized he just stopped all of a sudden. I was like, well, what happened to him? And I just sort of started looking around on my own personally, like, what happened to Bill Mantlo? And that's when I discovered he had suffered a near-fatal car accident, um, a hit-and-run incident that left him really with major chronic health problems. And he sort of fell through the cracks of the modern healthcare system. Now, at the time, I was the editor-in-chief of National Underwriter Life and Health, and, and the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act had just passed. So there's a massive national conversation about the state of healthcare and how do you finance healthcare? And I was like, well, gee whiz, we just had this massive reform and it didn't help this guy. Why did that not help this guy? How did that happen? And so I just did this really interesting deep dive. And that's, that's where like my personal geek interest and my professional, um, you know, financial interest really dovetailed perfectly. I learned an awful lot about him. A uh, very, very sad story. Spoke to a lot of fantastic folks during that. And we wrote the story. And the great thing about it was that it really caught fire, went viral. People within the comic industry picked it up and spread the word like, hey, Bill is hurt. He's actually needing funding for his health care. Can people help out? Some really wonderful things came of that that I'll, I will never stop being proud of. The first is that we won a bunch of awards. But one of them came with a cash prize that I, I was able to donate to Bill's care. That really meant a lot to me. In the writing of the story, I was able to get his son-in-law to speak on the record with me. And he and his father had not seen each other for like 17 years. Like the nature of Bill's decline was so traumatic on his family, the family broke apart. And throughout the course of the story, those two reunited and reconciled. And I, I got to be there to make that happen or help that happen. And that, that really matters a lot to me that I was able to help another person just through the dint of my writing. But the other really cool thing that happened, and I can't, I can't say there's a straight line between what I did and what happened, but I suspect there might be a dotted line, which was this story got so big in the comic world 
um, around that time, Marvel was getting ready to to really put the the work into the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and one of the characters in that rocket, you know, the raccoon, Bill Mantlo created, but Bill created him right before writers were getting like a share of their of their intellectual property they created. So Bill never got any percentage off of anything related to Rocket. And so the attention on him spurred Marvel to turn around. They made a very sizable donation to his care. And uh, I'm not sure that would have happened had there not been so much heat around his name and his story. And this story is one of my favorite things I ever, I ever did. It was enormously fun to do. But, you know, it also speaks to the notion of I think when you're writing about matters of of finance and writing about matters, and this this goes to ethics and compliance as well, is that these professional disciplines that define us and that drive us, they touch so many things outside of our our strict office life, and the, the lives we lead outside of them often can inform how we look at our profession. And I don't think it's out of bounds to look at the things that we love in our personal life and go, well, how do they how do they manifest themselves in our professional life as well, and how can we draw upon them and how can we comment on them, and um. Yeah, I'm, I'm always looking for that next story. <laughs> it's a great lead, and I often think that um, what we do in finance is so important, but sometimes we lose the connection to the individual, the beneficiary, or in this case, the, the patient or the insurer or whoever. So you mentioned compliance and ethics. Let me, let me take it from the very specific individual to a broader question. How do you find, define the difference between a compliance culture and an ethical business culture? For me, it's as simple as a matter of, are you using uh, negative reinforcement or positive reinforcement to get to the same end, which is simply don't get us into trouble, right? Compliance is very much, look, we have a set of rules. Do not break these rules. If you do, you will be penalized and, and you'll be penalized because we will be penalized. So it's very, it's a very, you know, prescriptive and punitive approach. It's very heavy on monitoring and on surveillance and it works, but it's also very resource intensive. Ethics is when that, that, that question inevitably crosses every compliance officer's mind going, you know, what if we just like, what if everybody just wanted to do good? We wouldn't have to be so, so we wouldn't have to spend so much energy <laughs> enforcing compliance upon them, right? Cause they would naturally be taking care of all the problems that we're trying to solve for. Um, and so that's where compliance and ethics tend to, tend to crossover and one tends to morph into the other. I think for me, really, when you look at it from a professional standpoint, the ethics function is really no different than the compliance function. I just think it's it's a, a state of evolution higher. It's a little bit more sophisticated. It's getting to, you know, culture and character and going, look, you know, why do we want to do the right thing? So if you're in a finance firm, how do you build an ethical culture? Oh man, that's really great. Uh, not easily. Um, <laughs> not easily because, and this is my own personal bias in my years of reporting through national underwriter, especially I came across many fantastic, lovely, ethical, decent, upstanding, virtuous people. Also came across a lot of folks who simply didn't care and their business made it easy to not care because what they did in business was more than one step removed from the person it ultimately impacted. And so it was really hard to tie what you do in your office to how somebody out in the world pays for that. And so I found a lot of people who just didn't, they just became very callous or very cavalier um, or just very willing to kind of cut corners. And, and that was depressing to see. Um, but I think, how do, you, how do you address that? I think oftentimes, if you're starting from zero, 
you can't just go right to let's have an ethical culture because then people will think that you're just, you know, you're Mr. Rogers and that you're out of touch and, you know, you're not really thinking about all of the hard choices that go into making a profitable and sustainable business. So if you're starting from zero, I think it has to start from, has to start with compliance. You have to create a function, a framework by which you have an agreed upon set of rules that may or may not be determined by outside regulators, depending on the, the nature of your business. And going, look, we will abide by these rules, this set of behaviors. And if you step outside of these rules, then there will be consequences. Don't do it. Otherwise, we're going to trust you within this paddock of behavior to do the right, to do things that are going to benefit the, the organization. And when those when those guide rails get better defined and, and more clearly defined and more clearly understood and then become part of the muscle memory of an organization, that that's what starts becoming part of the culture, right? And then when you have that such a strong agreed upon set of standards, then you can start talking about, okay, let's talk about the why we do these things apart from the immediate cause and effect of if I break this rule, there will be pain. And you can start to talk about the intrinsic value that is built and that is harnessed and that is cultivated just by, by, by doing good. I mean, people sometimes have to learn to appreciate what it means to be selfless, what it means to work for something bigger than yourself, what it means to work by, you know, a set of rules that maybe uh, don't immediately gratify you, but prov provide some form of greater, more delayed gratification. And these are very these can, these can be very ephemeral concepts. So I think for a lot of organizations, it starts with the compliance. You you turn that 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 compliance kind of informs the culture, and once you have a culture to speak of, you can then go, okay, wait a minute, how do we make this culture a higher, more refined thing that speaks more towards the the best versions of ourselves? Is there any evidence? that getting there improves, to use the ethosphere definition, business success, meaning profitability or efficiency, because economists often talk about trust as a lubricant and that it makes things much more efficient. Um, I would think that if you had achieved some sort of ethical culture, you'd be increasing trust amongst the people who participate in that culture. And therefore, you could logically think there should be some improvement in business. Well, that's the $64 trillion question, isn't it? I think a lot of what we're doing at Ethosphere, frankly, is building the science of ethics, whereby you can say, if you do these behaviors, if you reach these certain levels of, of behavior, or if you hit these certain benchmarks, then you're likely to see, or you're going to see a corresponding rise in the value of your business. And I think the thing I like to point to the most is probably one of our most quoted pieces of data, which is... It's what we call the five-year ethics premium, right? And this is attached to our annual world's most ethical companies designation. And we've built this really big data set based off that ethics quotient over the years. And we have this really fantastic graphic, uh, which you can see at worldsmostethicalcompanies.com. And it's the financial performance of the companies that are the world's most ethical companies compared to a index of similarly, you know, high cap companies over the course of five years. And on average, over those five years, the world's most ethical companies cohort outperforms their their peer group. Now it's that that gap has reached almost 25%. Correlation is not causation, but to me, this is a pretty fat dotted line, to be honest with you. Um, and I think that it's not a spurious correlation at all, because I think 
the things we see in these companies that are the world's ethical companies are things that speak to that 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 lubricant of trust that you that you say. But it's also other things. It's things like talent retention. It's things like um, you know goodwill with regulators, right? So when there is a misstep, there's there might be a presumption of just simple mistake rather than actual malign intent. There's strength of partnerships. There's reputational lift. There's all kinds of things. It's like a constellation of interconnected um, factors that come into these behaviors. And again, to my previous answer, they, they start from very robust, very mature compliance functions that evolve into very robust, very mature, very far-seeking, very nuanced ethical cultures that thrive because of these compliance cultures. And they, they all feed back on each other. That's the one thing I would always point to. I think that's the, the, the Rosetta Stone. Let's talk about who as opposed to what and how. Who gets to sit the guardrails that determine what is ethical? I mean, traditionally, I think, historically at least, we would say that society with religion is an ethical underpinning and government, uh, particularly since the rise of nation states in the 19th century, government's the distiller of those precepts and the enforcer, and they set the guardrails that determine what is and what is not both legal and ethical. But lately, perhaps with fewer people uh, participating in organized religion, with questions about legitimacy of government or inability of government to function in some cases, we see other actors. I mean, social media, the Me Too movement, it's not that social media in and of itself is an actor, but it, it facilitates ordinary individuals being actors, society generally in boycotts and pressures, and now capital markets trying to enforce ethical behavior. Do you see the same thing or am I imagining it? And do you have a theory as to why everyone now has an opinion of what is ethical and feels they have the right to try to enforce that? Mm. And do you think it's a good or bad thing that everyone could do this? Uh, let me start by saying this. So yes, I think if you look at things like the Edelman Trust Barometer, right, trust in institutions in particular is very, very low. Now, speaking as somebody who has been a longtime reporter, I'm used to people not trusting me, right? Uh, and to be fair, my, my that trait of mine has done a lot to earn mistrust. I, I get it, right? But, you know, kidding aside though, I mean, a lot of major institutions that we depend upon for a certain level of certainty in our life, they just have a very low trust quotient for a variety of reasons, right? But I think part of them is that in today's specific day and age, the intersection between, I'm, I'm talking, I'm going to talk first and foremost as an American, uh, and then by extension, part of Western culture, I should say. But, you know, the intersection of our general culture and our technology, it can't be understated. There's really nowhere to hide anymore, especially if you're a large, public, highly regulated company, but even a lot that aren't. It's so easy for a misstep of some kind or for genuine bad behavior to be uh, seen, to be recorded, to be called out, to be shared, to be amplified in ways that just 20 years ago would have been impossible, right? There were real bottlenecks on that flow of information. So now that information is just much more out there, out in the open. So it's much more easy for there to be a sense of personal accountability that can be asymmetrical. One person can try to hold a large institution you know, accountable in a way that one person really couldn't in, in the past. Everybody has always had an opinion on things, but communication lanes have become so broad and instant that I think now everybody can share it. 
And I think this is the important thing. I think everybody can find community in their opinions, no matter what those opinions are. And that validates the desire to externalize what you think. It creates a lot of noise versus signal, right? Um, and it makes for a very loud and messy public square. But I think ultimately, to your question of is this a good or a bad thing, I think ultimately this is the kind of crucible in which we determine right from wrong, uh, in which we determine acceptable from unacceptable, and ultimately good from evil. So I think ultimately it's a positive, but man, what a painful positive. To get to your original point of, well, who, who determines these things, right? I mean, there's no one, there's no one source. And I think that's perhaps part of our angst is that <laughs> we're all, you know, we're all to a certain degree kind of more responsible for carrying that weight on our, on our own. And that's scary and it's kind of hard and you're kind of find yourself in the moral wilderness a lot more than you did before because there aren't things you can, re you can rely upon or trust in quite a lot. I will say this, and this gets me back a bit to what I do for Ethisphere, which is that despite the erosion of trust in institutions, trust in business to lead the way through values, I oddly is rather high. Um, and you know, I think, you know, we talk about values-based leadership quite a lot at Ethisphere. And I think that businesses everywhere have an opportunity to really, you know, to say, what do we believe in as an organization? What are our values beyond just the simple creation of, of things for which we make a profit. Every business has a, has a social license by which it operates, whether it knows it or not, right? And the, the values of an organization, the way an organization expresses those values has a direct impact on the strength of their social license. And so business leaders, I think, are largely waking up to that and realizing, you know, not to be performative, but to go, look, every organization has values um, and understanding what those values are. And frankly, putting them on display a little bit. Again, not necessarily to be performative, but to go, look, this is what we believe. This is why we believe. This is how we're going to ex exercise it. People can see it anyway. So when businesses go, this is what we believe, judge us by that. It's a very powerful element in terms of determining, well, you know, who determines what's ethical and what's not. Business is already doing it. Um, and I think some of the ones that, that do it in a way that's very, that are rather admirable are having a pretty outsized influence on it. But it's all very... It's all very circular because there are a lot more people now who are looking to places like business. A, show us a good example to follow. B, show me where you screwed up because I want to call you out. I mean, those things are parallel to each other and they are really pointed. Let's talk about values in a different realm for a second. It seems obvious or maybe it's my forced after the fact analysis that ethics and power are at the center of fantasy books and role play games. Mm. Um, is that something you were conscious of when you wrote them, or did you just enjoy doing them as escapism without regard to the moral universe you create? And then today, as you sit there having done this for a couple of decades, is there any cross-fertilization in Bill Coffin's mind between your work in creating those fantasy worlds and your work in thinking about how morals and ethics and power work in the real world? What a marvelous question. Yeah. I'll start with the end and then I'll go back. Yes, they very much cross-pollinate for me. So I started playing fantasy role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons specifically, when I was a little kid. I was like nine years old, right? Like, you know, not to date myself, but you know, it was it was a while ago. <laughs> and role-playing games famously um tend to offer morally neutral environments in which you can play. You are not prescribed necessarily to be the good guy. You can choose to pretend to be a bad person if you want. 
right? There's nothing in the game holding you back from that, which gave a lot of people some angst initially, like, whoa, why would you make a game that allows this and then sell it to children? And and a lot of role-playing game play is what what people in the hobby call murder hobo activity, which is basically, you know, you know, fantasy heroes go into a dungeon or a cave, beat up some monsters and take their stuff, right? And then leave. <laughs> and they're just laying that and rinse, rinse and repeat. And that that drives a lot of what people do in role-playing games. Now I have played games like that, but that's not where my love for the the game and the hobby really came from. My love for it, where I really, really, truly started to to fall in love with these things to the point where I wanted to start writing them was um, was the fact that you know when you play these games, you're taking on a creative alter ego. You're creating a a heroic character, some kind of pretending to be that person, and that provides really fantastic um, and very fertile ground for storytelling. And in in that space. There's conflicts of all different kinds. There's physical conflicts, you know, danger to your character. But then there's like the possibility for emotional and and ethical conflict as well in terms of, you know, I'm faced with a difficult decision. How do I proceed? Now, for many years, I've been the person running these games rather than playing these games. I'm, I'm, what, I'm what you call a forever DM, right? I'm always the guy running the game. And the, the dungeon master or the game master, they're the combination of like in these games, they're, they're, they're the arbiter of rules, they're the referee, but they're also the narrator, they're also the storyteller, they're the chorus, they're lots of things. And when I run these games, what I try to stress is a, 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 a hierarchy of challenges to the players, right? And ultimately, it drives to difficult decisions uh, and ethical decisions and, you know, things that put morality in motion. I think those are the most compelling moments of the adventures and the ones that my players tend to like the most when... Yes, you're fighting dragons or you're trying to get out of a burning castle or whatever. But and eventually, I always put to them some kind of thing to which there is, at least at, at first, not an easy answer. You have slain this marauding band of evil giants and you find this massive pile of plunder in their cave. Hooray, you're rich. But then, stop for a second. Where did that money come from? These giants didn't mind it themselves. They pillaged it themselves. Who ultimately owned this before you came across it? Do you want to give it back? You know, and like that question never comes up in role playing games very often, but I, I pose it to my players, and it gives them a moment to stop. Going, wait a minute, maybe we maybe we should, right? Um, or you know, you're deep in in dark territory, trying to infiltrate some sorcerer's castle, and it's important that your characters stay hidden so you can stealthily, you know, gain entrance. But along the way, a small goblin child sights you and then runs off back to their village to to raise an alarm. What do you do? Are you going to harm this child to protect your safety, or are you going to not because it's still a child, you know, and, and you have to leave it alone. And and my players, <laughs> to a degree, these are kind of rhetorical because I choose to play with people who are pretty much in line with my my worldview. But ultimately, the, it always comes down to is yes, there is an expedient course of action that would give us more immediate gratification or more immediate reward, but it has a much deeper, darker, long term cost to it that we simply do not want to incur. We don't want to beat up a goblin child. That's an evil act. We don't want to just take something that doesn't belong to us. That's a selfish act. And ultimately, my games stress the notion that the greatest rewards await those who put others above the self, who choose good over evil, who choose creation over destruction, um, and that eventually those things are rewarded. They're always rewarded, and they're rewarded in ways that are much greater than the initial reward you would have gotten had you gone the other way. 
And that's just part of how I look at things. And when I think about the ethics of compliance space, when I think about ethics, when I imagine companies faced with similarly impossible decisions, you're operating in a country where suddenly massive sanctions have dropped and you were told to get out of that country immediately, that you have 10,000 people who work for you there. And if you leave right away, you're, you're abandoning those folks to an uncertain future. How do you proceed? How do you, how do you abide by the law and yet not harm your people? How do you find a way forward that actually is the right way forward and yet doesn't cause harm? These are real world issues people have to deal with all the time. And I think what I like most about role playing games is the opportunity to really kind of, you know, to role play those impossible moments that we face in life where you are, you are given a, a moment where you must make a choice. The way forward is not clear, but you have your morals and your values to guide you. And how will they guide you in a moment of stress? And you have a five-year correlated value creation to prove it. From yeah. <laughs> Let's finish up with some short questions and answers. How do you relax other than fantasy? I watch a stupid amount of YouTube. <laughs> I really, I really do. Um, I go down YouTube rabbit holes like every night. Uh, a little bit more constructively, one thing I like to do also, speaking of rabbit holes, is um, a few years ago, I got bitten by the family history bug. And so I've been doing a lot of genealogical research on, on my family. And that's just been a ton of fun. Do you listen to music? I do. I do. I listen to a lot of music. I learned some time ago that most people, by the time they hit the age of 35, stop listening or stop discovering new music. And that's, that is so sad to me <laughs> because we live, we have more access to more good music than ever before. It's everywhere you look. I mean, whether you're going to Nick, traditional routes, um, you know, Spotify and Apple Music or just things like Bandcamp and, you know, SoundCloud and all sorts of other YouTube as well. You know, it's so much good stuff out there. I have been listening to a lot of what they call post-rock, which is a genre of music that's hard. To, it's almost like symphonic rock and roll, um, if you imagine, or like, imagine like classic Classic uh, music structure, but done with kind of modern contemporary rock instrumentation. And there are all these bands that have these like bizarre, very descriptive names like Explosions in the Sky and uh, Tides from Nebula and that sort of stuff. But I just love listening to it because it's, you know, it just puts me in a good mood. It's very thematic and really quite enjoy it. What are you reading right now? I recently finished reading uh, Master and Commander by Patrick O'Brien, the beginning of that massive Aubrey Matron series. Uh, actually, I read that for our podcast because one of my friends was like, we got to do an Auburn Imagine episode. I'm like, sorry. So I started reading the books and then I realized, oh man, I just started the beginning of a 20 volume journey because they're so good. I also just finished a really fantastic nonfiction book called All of the Marvels by Douglas Wolk, um, a guy who under undertook the insane quest to read like all 27,000 issues of Marvel Comics published to date. And then talks about what did he what did he learn from all that and what 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 is Marvel Comics telling us over this massive narrative that spans decades and that was that was surprisingly good. And then right up, up on deck is uh, a book by a friend of mine named Christopher Swan called Never Go Home. He's been writing these really cool crime thriller books, um, and uh, Never Go Home is on on my desk right now, and I uh, can't wait to to tuck into that one. If you could be on vacation right now. Where would it be? I have this thing about really remote islands. I don't know why, but I'm just fascinated by them. So I'd, I'd like to visit one of those. Maybe someplace like St. Helena, you know, out in the middle of the Atlantic. Or there's a really cool island in Japan called Aogashima, which is like it, this little village inside of a nestled in a little volcanic caldera. 
I would have loved to have visited an island called Vulcan Point in the Philippines, but it's uh, it's no longer there. I got obliterated. But it was a island in a lake on an island in a lake on an island. <laughs> so just just oddball oddball places. That have my you family ever actually w- gone to one of these remote islands? Oh no 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 no. This is all this is so deep on the bucket list thing. These are things that. <laughs> Frankly, my my family would never come with me. These are just you no, know, just <laughs> these are reasons just to. I would go there just to be there, you know. But as far as like like a more conventional place to go, um, you know, honestly, I do love retreating to Cape Cod quite often. That's kind of our second our home away from home. Um, I love being near the ocean. Um, but uh, but to you know, but I, I I love being near the ocean, but not too near. Uh, to to quote an old Nantucket saying, uh, if you can see the ocean, the ocean can see you. <laughs> Last question. If you could magically speak into everyone in the world's ear, what would you tell them? I would tell them this. We are all carrying awful weight these days, but you are not alone. You are loved and you are worth loving. I would want everyone to know that. Very happy to have had Bill Coffin, editor-in-chief of Ethosphere, as our guest on today's Outside In. A fascinating discussion about ethics, fantasy, compliance, personal responsibility, and ultimately, um, I think your phrase was creation over destruction. So thanks so much, Bill. Really appreciate you being on. John, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.